everyone. Welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino Security Confidential. Today we are really honored to have Dr. Calvin Nobles join us. Dr. Nobles has a very deep background in cybersecurity that goes and spans many years. He's an esteemed speaker. He's given many talks on the topic. Uh, his knowledge of finance uh, in cybersecurity is absolutely at, at the top and uh, his, uh, has some great ideas on national security, and, and we're really grateful to have him on the show. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Nobles. Well, sir, thank you for having me on the show, and I look forward to the, uh, the discussion. And I love spreading the gospel of cybersecurity and you know, seeing how we can make it better because this is a never-ending battle, and we must position ourselves for the long haul to win. So, you know, one place I thought it would be very interesting to start this conversation, because you have such a great background in finance in, in that sector, and, the, and financial institutions in our industry are often looked upon as some of the best-guarded institutions uh, out there. But to us uh, at Dark Rhino, the conversation starts with understanding risk. When you invest in cybersecurity, you really should do it in alignment with the risk that your organization has. What's the likelihood and magnitude of loss from a given attack surface that you might encounter that you really need to, and that guards, if you will, the crown jewels, right? Right. What, how, can you give some thoughts on how organizations should go about assessing risk or what are some approaches there that would uh, guide them in their investment decisions for cybersecurity? Absolutely. I think one of the first things that organizations can do regarding risk is address it from a cultural aspect. It is an enterprise-level effort. It's not something that should be just relegated to the IT department or to the chief information security officer or to the chief information officer. It is that we are in an all-hands evolution here regarding risk. It should be driven not necessarily from, from the top down, but also from the bottom up. Because sometimes throughout the different layers of the organization, they see things and they need to have the ability to raise those issues without fear or you know some type of reprisal. And so I always say that people are sensors and they can be some of the best information finders and give you some of the best, what we call, when I was in the military, early indications and warnings of things going on. And so you got to learn to incorporate that into your risk calculus because at the end of the day, you know, as you hear me say numerous times, you can buy the best technology, you can put in the best security controls, the best um, countermeasures, but what's going to really get you there is really making people uh, an active element of your risk calculus and, and also understanding the human factor associated with that. And when I was on the speaking circuit in 2018, I travel around to many industry conferences talking to you know, a lot of senior executives in the industry, and I will always ask the questions, how many of you have completed a risk assessment recently? And everybody's hands go up. Yeah. That's the correct answer. However, uh, my second question was a little more rhetorical, and not too many hands went up on this one. And the second question always was, how many of you accounted for the human-based risk factor in your risk assessment? And that is where we stand to improve. Because you know we we see today we we are dealing with security fatigue, burnout, stress at unprecedented levels like we've never seen before. Because the cybersecurity threat environment is that hyperactive, it's also a very diabolical 
uh, entity, right? So we're dealing with a lot when we talk about risk management. And so it really requires organizations to kind of be on their toes, be flexible, and understand a lot of different moving parts. And that's why, I mean, risk management is at the end of the day is an all-hands evolution. And, you know, uh, I, I agree with you completely. And, and when it comes to risk, uh, you mentioned about people. Uh, we always try and uh, preach the gospel of uh People are your biggest cybersecurity asset, actually, right? I mean, right. they are the one most underutilized asset in the company, actually, when it comes to cybersecurity. Uh, in fact, you go to most companies and you ask the average person, do they know what's going on in cybersecurity or have they had training on it? Now, some people may have had some phishing training, but... By and large, it's like a nebulous term to them. It's like a bunch of right. people sitting in a dark room somewhere doing something. I think those people, if we can empower them, yes. get them involved in the conversation, they have a lot to say. And, and the culture that you bring up is, is absolutely key because um, if we can have an environment where people understand the why – why are not just have a policy, but they understand the why, then they will proactively look out for certain types of behaviors and actions, and they might be the earliest indicator of compromise. Absolutely. You know, the people element is so critical to what we're doing in cybersecurity, and that's why you heard me talk a lot. I've been a, a real... Um, advocate for the human factor in cybersecurity and part, part of that is because I just recently finished uh, a PhD in human factors but I've been studying human factors in cybersecurity for years and I, I, I kind of like to compare cybersecurity to aviation and to some cases what they've done in medicine regarding the human factor you know those are two different domains where we've seen a lot of errors we've seen people go into a hospital to have a procedure done and when they come out they have the wrong procedure performed and aviation, we've seen countless uh, incidents of just crashes and other uh, hazardous dealing with airplanes and dealing with people. And so there's a lot to learn from those domains. And we kind of, when in cybersecurity, we kind of trail behind those industries regarding, you know, placing people at the center of our operations. And so I'm a huge advocate of humor center operations, meaning placing people at the core. And everything else is built around the people because at the end of the day the people and cybersecurity are inseparable no matter what we look at in cybersecurity you can't separate it from the people and so having a well-trained staff who are securely aware of the environment and the threats and risks can go a long way now that's easier said than done because when you start talking about the daily tasks that our people are responsible for doing that we're responsible for doing there's a lot of wear and tear on the person and so we need to start not only just thinking about it from a risk aspect, we also got to start looking at it from a human aspect with a lot of attention paid to human performance. Because over time, if you're not careful of how you, how hard you're pushing your cybersecurity professionals, you can really burn them out and wear them down to where there's a degradation in their efforts. And you set that up uh, for my next question is, how, what are some lessons we can actually learn from the aviation industry where fatigue has played a role in so many crashes, right? And and then the industry has actually stepped up to the plate and has started to ad really address some of those factors. We, right. and it's not, we see some of that in our own 
industry here in cybersecurity. Right. What what are some uh, tips or guidelines you can you might be able to give on that that we need lessons learned? Right. So um, one of the things that I, I love talking about is called the Dirty Dozens. Okay. It's a, a group of uh, aviation researchers came together and they highlighted 12 dangerous attitudes that can degrade aviation operations or make aviation more inherently risky than what it already is. And when I looked at these, the Dirty Dozen, they, they were parallel to, to cybersecurity. And some of them like complacency, some of them is like uh, over-reliance, uh, over and there's you know, 12 of them, and I, I don't remember all of them off the top of my head. But one of the things we need to do is identify dangerous attitudes in cyber. And what that helps us understand is give us mitigation strategies to those different attitudes. Say, for instance, in aviation, you know, when, when I was flying, when I was much younger than I am now, um, one of the things we had, we just, one of the dangerous attitudes, you know, was get home nighters. I mean, everybody was ready to get home, right? So you, you bump up the throttles, you start cutting steps out, you start doing things. And when you start doing that, you have to take a step back and say, we are making what we're doing more inherently dangerous. So in, in cyber, you see some of the parallels because people just want to get things done at the end of the day. And so sometimes we implement, you know, uh, controls and other measures in place, and it makes people circumvent what we have done. The reason people circumvent the countermeasures that we put in place is because things have gotten too complex for them. And so just like in aviation, we know where the, cognitive, the cognitively demanding functions are. We know what those tasks are. And so we allocate certain time, and sometimes we put, you know, two people involved in those tasks and functions because they're just too demanding. Like, for instance, if you ever had the opportunity to sit on a, a flight deck, you would notice when the pilot is flying, you got one pilot flying, the other one's running the right. checklist, doing all the communication, and then they come, they're working and they're talking through things. You know, and some we need to have that same flow in cyber. We need to identify some of our more riskier tasks and functions and label them as such so that we can put mitigation strategies in place. For instance, like merger and acquisition. That needs to be number one on everybody's task when we're talking about cybersecurity because there's a lot of risk associated with that. And so if we can uh, identify some things like that and start working in parallel and borrowing some from the healthcare and the aviation community, I think we can just can start to reduce some of the errors and some of the problems we see in cyber. Uh, I know th uh, you might remember the exfiltration of information from Target, right? Yes. And, and in that case, yes. uh, their systems were actually telling them something's wrong and they were just choosing to ignore it or turn the alarm off, right? Right. Could human factors have been a huge uh, player in that? Uh, we don't know. Absolutely, because absolutely because one thing you know, even when I was going through my aviation training, and even when I was part of the squadron, when you got a warning indication, you never just wish that warning indication away. You had yeah. to investigate it, right? right? So we have to teach our cybersecurity professionals, and not just our cybersecurity professionals, but all of our employees. If you get a warning or something doesn't seem right, stop, ask questions, inquire, elevate it to the next level for assistance if you need it, if necessary. And by doing that, I think that we will become more cognizant and we become more aware of some of the things in our environment. Again, on risk, is there, uh, have you seen in your experience any particular framework that does a better job of a risk assessment, whether you look at NIST or you look at the FAIR model? or any number of other models out there. Is there one that's a favorite for you? 
I would have to say the, the niche framework. I really like the niche framework. Um, I was there. I, I shouldn't say I was there, but I remember when we first started, you know, utilizing the niche framework. To me, it just made sense, you know, it, and it still makes sense to this day. So I, I'm a fan favorite when it comes to the NIST. However, there's other frameworks out there that's just as uh, effective as the NIST framework. And so when I when it comes to a framework, what I tell people is try not to get um, in so involved that this is the only framework you think of. Also pay attention to some of the other frameworks because some frameworks call out certain areas more so than others. Like, uh, again, ISO 27001 is very good when it comes to user-centered design and does a much more better job with it than the NIST framework. So there's some things that you can leverage from that particular framework that the NIST framework might not focus on as much. So I think a hybrid of a little bit from each one of them can get you there. And I just think that, you know, they each serve a purpose. But I'm a, I'm a big fan of the, uh, of the NIST framework. It really makes sense from a business aspect as well. There is a lot of, one would say, uh, tie-in between cybersecurity and national security. Right? Yes. Right? I think it's yeah. a new um, battlefront. Yes. A absolutely. You know, when, when I was in the, um, the Navy, I spent some time working inside of the intelligence community and I spent some time at one of our national level agencies so it was very natural to become an expert in, in national security. National security is so important for the advancement of our country and not just necessarily our country but for the global environment as well. The United States plays such a critical role and when we talk cybersecurity, um, you, you look at what our government has done, what our private industry has has done in terms of building these very robust networks and systems and this infrastructure. We rely on these things daily. Our organizations, whether it's private or public, has you know they have invested significantly in this infrastructure. And because of this, because you know globaliz the expansion of globalization, the advancement of different technologies it makes it easier for our infrastructure to become attacked. And so when we're talking about national security, we just can't look at the federal government anymore. We have to look at critical industries as, as well, because if you look at our most attacked industries, you can see where the, the our adversaries, state sponsors, non-state sponsors, hackers, cyber criminals, whoever it may be, are targeting certain industries more than others. And because they're targeting those industries the way they are, it's very strategic. Right. And it's looking like cybersecurity is becoming our underbelly. And because people are targeting our under underbelly so much, we're having to take very progressive steps to secure that underbelly. And we're having to do that through the na national security. Now, we have, we have U.S. Cyber Command. We have a very robust intelligence community. But that's not enough. We have to partner with our private industry and our private um, organizations and also our non-profit organizations as well as well as academia we need to build that bond because national security it does primarily rest on the shoulders of the federal government but it also rests on the shoulders of the rest of us too because we are so interconnected from a technology aspect it's almost impossible to separate I wrote a paper about a year ago maybe about a year and a half ago and it's called disrupting the United States national security through financial cyber crimes. Really? And again, you know, I view um, the our cybersecurity infrastructure and what we're facing in terms of cybersecurity as our, under, our new underbelly, right? 
because it's it's kind of exposed. It's, it's kind of area that that's exposed right now, and we're working as diligently as we can to protect it. But uh, like you said, you you can't separate what's happening on the federal side or what's happening on on the public side from our private partners because we really rely on each other for very unique services. And anytime there's an attack against the United States. In my perspective, our national security is threatened, but so is the global, I mean, the global international security level is threatened because the United States is such a critical player on the international stage. And so when companies see that the United States being attacked, the first thing they're thinking, imagine what that's doing psychologically to countries who's not as advanced or capable as the United States. It's messing with them psychologically. So they're saying, wow, if this happening to the United States, what can happen to us? So in your paper, when you, um, what were some of your findings uh, that, can you elaborate on some of them that, that you found with uh, affecting national security with cybercrime? That's very interesting. Yeah, so one of the things that I've, I, one of the findings that I discovered was that between 2016 and 2018, the financial industry was, was one of the fastest growing industry in terms of cybersecurity protection that was investing significantly to protect those assets. And this was just not in the United States. This was internationally. So that gives you an idea of the investment by these, you know, these financial institutions or what they were dealing with from a, a threat and a risk aspect. So to have them to invest significantly in that. The other thing we, I, I determined was that banks and other financial institutions are in the business of providing services. And what's unique about that is the more services that we provide to our customers, the larger our attack surface becomes. And because of that, we that plays into the hands of nefarious agents. They're able to capitalize and take advantage of that. And so one of the things that I recommended for in my, one of the outcomes of my paper was that we take a look at enhancing our authentication for uh, for customers and anybody who's trying to access, you know, whatever type of financial or financial services uh, entity uh, while they're at home or somewhere um, out and about. And one of the other things I made was not to use, not to access these type of services when you're on a public Wi-Fi unless you are really skilled and know how to protect yourself preferably to do it at home and also how to en enhance your mobile devices so that they are more secure so that you can uh, have that mobile banking um, on, on the ease. So I, I got a call from a good friend of mine on Friday afternoon, last Friday, and he said, hey man, you're not going to believe this and I had to share this with you because I know you would get a kick out of this. He said, I'm talking with the CEO of a company, a small company, and he said, they just been hacked and so I started talking with the CEO about managing her platform and everything. And he was like, she's never changed the password. She's never changed her password. And her employees have never changed their passwords. And, and I'm not saying this to pick on small companies. I'm saying this to highlight how we need to start getting the words out and we need to start partnering with small companies to ensure that they understand because you're a small company, it doesn't mean that you don't stand a chance of being hacked. Because in fact, as a small company, you're more of a gateway into a larger company because you're going to be partnering and probably in somebody's supply chain. So that's why you are target. Uh, so you can be that um, 
that uh, that gateway into somebody else's uh, network. Uh, I went to the DuPont Summit about in 2019, and I did a presentation on businesses leveraging the dark web to uh, to conduct business because of the security aspects of the dark web. Should we look at the dark web as a business medium? Hmm. Now that's very interesting. I, I would venture that most people have never been on the dark web, have never gone there, yes. and explored a lot of the sites and things that and groups that are going on there. And I and I would say that's a good thing because the, you know the dark web is a lot. Well, a lot of the pros play at that level, and if you're not careful, you know you can expose yourself there and become a victim quite easily. Right. But you uh, you can also look at how the chain of trust is created, right? So you, yes. you, can, uh, you can outsource cybercrime today. That's no big secret. With 500 bucks, I'm sure I could get somebody in Eastern Europe to do some things <laughs> that, <laughs> yes. that, that are not good, right? I'll leave it at that. But the chain of trust that it would take for me to get into that circle to be able to execute that. Yes. Um, maybe something that's noteworthy of studying from, from and seeing if that I, I, can be applied in conventional business in doing the right thing. Right. You know, even just if, you know, you can, if you say company A and company B work together to use the dark web to, to conduct their transactions, you know, because those, those two entities know who they are, they can meet on the dark web, conduct their transactions, and don't have to worry about you know transmitting over the, what we call the internet anymore. See, so the regular internet. So, how I, I don't know if you remember, but way back when, um, in I'm going to turn back the clock to the late '80s, or, or <laughs> early '90s. Hey, I, I was a young man back then. Let's see, think now. So a, anyhow, um, there was a book. Uh, and a program called PGP, Pretty Good Privacy, that was... Yeah! <laughs> remember that? And, and, yeah, I do. And, and there you could use it to send encrypted emails, and the whole thing was that you created your public key. It's, a, it's still used today. That's what public-private yes. key encryption is for, for all our listeners. Uh, but you managed those keys. You dictated yep. who you gave those keys out to. Now, that is a... That's a fairly, it's pretty good privacy as it implies, right? It's not 100%, but it's its pretty good. That's kind of the process what you're trying to, what you're saying between two companies. If we have that exchange of sessions of quote-unquote keys, then you know who I am, I know who you are, and we're cutting out everybody in the middle as part of it. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a great idea. I, I mean, personally, I think it's a great idea. Of course, you know, I haven't really um, l explored it any further than that. It's, I just talked about it. Uh, I researched it conceptually. Yeah, and, and not only that, you know, when we talk talking about the dark web, we're talking about an entity that's about 700% larger than the Internet that we see, right? So you, you, we don't know what we don't know about the dark web and what's out there and who's operating in it. Do you think that uh, most businesses... Have they transitioned to seeing cybersecurity as a business problem and not an IT problem? I think for the most part, most businesses 
have transitioned over to it been an enterprise issue than an IT issue. But it also depends on how the leadership I'm talking about and the partnerships between the chief information officer, the chief information security officers, and the chief risk officer are really pushing that agenda because it should be across the board, everybody's involved because it, it doesn't necessarily have to be the IT department. It could be anybody that's being a vector or being a target. And so you have to treat it as a whole. And I think as long as with the the amount of play that the chief information officers are getting, the amount of attention that the chief information security officers are getting, I think everybody's beginning to see this as an enterprise level problem. Is there, well, let me ask this. Have you seen, because we haven't seen this much, uh, where the CISOs do not report into the CIO. They've actually been separated out as a separate function altogether from IT. I have a lot of friends that are that are CISOs, and you know, and we talk several times a week. And most of them feel that by reporting to the CIO, that their agenda is not as clear as they would like to make it, because the CISO has a role of reporting the facts and what it is, and that and that and that information needs to be unfeathered. It doesn't need uh, unfettered. It doesn't need to be changed or modified. It needs to be what the CISO is seeing from his or her lens, and that's how it needs to be carried out. It doesn't need to be vetted by anybody else, because a lot of CISOs believe that that's what's changing the overall interplay between cybersecurity and some of the other priorities across the organization. You know, I, I heard someone make a comment earlier today. I was on a phone converse, uh, conversation with someone, and they would say, most cybersecurity programs are getting what they deserve, not what they don't. How does, they're not getting what they need. They're getting what they deserve, right? And so, as long as we have that type of thinking and that type of mentality, that's going to be that's going to be problematic. But I'm also a proponent of thinking that the cost of maintaining these cybersecurity programs becoming really robust and that it's not sustainable if you look at it on a, a you know a 15 year you know trajectory the cost of what these companies are paying for cybersecurity you can't sustain it and so somebody asked me well if you were in charge what would you do Calvin and I say this is exactly what I would do I will I will take a look at how we can make humans stronger than what they really are how do we design systems that we design them to the natural abilities of humans and now to counter the natural abilities of humans. And they were like, well, how would you do that? I was like, think about it. We forget our passwords. I forget mine sometimes. You forget yours sometimes. You know, so why don't we design systems where we don't need to use passwords? Can we use biometric authentication? Can that work? You know, because that's that's how you design systems to where, you know, you don't have to have humans calling down to the help desk, changing their passwords every other month because they don't forgot their password or writing it down, leaving it on their desk or inside of their desk drawer or somewhere, or putting it in their purse, purse getting stolen, right? So how can we avoid all of these things and, and make systems that are more favorable for humans? I think that there is a over-reliance of tools in our, in our industry. Oh, yes. You know, yes. You know, so... <laughs> For everything, there's a tool, and everyone's pitching a tool. And, 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 <laughs> and I think if you...
you could have every tool, and even if you integrated them all together, whether it was AI-based, not AI-based, you know, uh, wh whatever you have, you still wouldn't have a 100% secure organization. Right. There is no such thing as 100%, right? There is no such thing but process. Yes. Right? Understand the risk. Put in a process to guard against the risk that you care about. The stuff that you don't care about, acknowledge it and accept it, right? What can you do with right. the risk? You can accept exactly. it, you can transfer it, or you can mitigate it. you got three choices there. So right. if you do a good job on the risk up front, then you can look at the processes that surround the risk that's relevant to you and really architect those processes well and make those people friendly. Bring people into that conversation. Enable them to do yes. the right thing. Then you do need tools. I'm not beating on the OEMs. You know, I'm not. <laughs> but it just seems like everywhere I turn, oh, here's a new AI <laughs> thing. And, and we try, you know, as a cybersecurity consultancy and a managed services provider to really say, look, it's not the tool. It's really the people and the process behind this. That's going to make all the difference in the world to you. Yes, absolutely. What you just said is so important. Is that you know I was I was reading LinkedIn a couple of days ago, and there was a chief information security officer. I forgot what she what she worked, but that's not important. But the point is, she said she fielded a call on a weekend from a vendor to her personal cell phone number. So that vendor has figured out how to get her personal cell phone number and call her on the weekend. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, God bless her, because I would have just hung up the phone and turned off my and turned off my cell phone. But she entertained the individual. I mean, she, she was very cordial about it. And I think, to me, we, that example that she um, made available to us is a bridge too far. I, I think that, you know, we have to restart, for vendors, they really have to start understanding who they want to work with, and also how can their product enhance what our chief information security officers need. You know, you don't need to call 15 chief information security officers a day because you don't really know what their environment is like. You haven't even developed a partnership with them, and you might not, that's not the best way to build that relationship. So do a little homework and invest some time into understanding that business so you can develop that partnership with that chief information security officer to, to, so you can get a better picture of what his or her needs. I, don't get me wrong, I am fascinated with the amount of technology we have in cyber, right? I, I, I must admit, I'm a junkie, I'm a technology <laughs> junkie, I enjoy it. I think it also shows our growth and maturity as an industry and the skilled people we have, right? We have some extremely skilled people in our industry. And so we're able to develop some of the best technologies much quicker than we were able to do in the past and so that's an indicative of our growth of our industry so that is a pat on the back for us i just think that organizations have to figure out which technologies do we need the most based on what we're trying to achieve from a business need and from the, and go from there uh, i've seen organizations that will boat technology on top of technology mm -hmm. and they will boat on so much technology that it will exceed their organic capabilities and they will have to go out and bring in all these specialists to help them understand what they have built because they, they don't even know what they have built at that point. How do we as leaders work through our unknowns unknowns to protect the business? Yeah, that um, 
I, I would love to see more businesses have that conversation internally and really look at it in those terms. You know, what are we covered for? What are we, what's our real attack surface? What are we guarding? Right. Right. And then have these other discussions and it might make a lot of sense. But uh, Yes, I think so. So, l l you know, we're getting here towards uh, the hour and, and but I want to give you a, ch uh, a chance to talk about some uh, other uh, interesting findings and things in your experience that uh, you would really like our audience to know about from a cybersecurity perspective. Absolutely. Um, and, and I must say this, I had this discussion today with um, um, a new friend of mine, and he's uh, well known in the, in the human factors field. In fact, uh, he's also supporting uh, several um, entities from a cybersecurity perspective. And, and I encourage more people who are interested in working in cybersecurity to look at human factors as a field um, because it's an emerging field right now and we're beginning to see more usage of human factors. We're beginning to see it in terms of user experience, user interface design, you know, designs. And as long as those fields stay around, they, they, they are indicative of what we're looking for and human factors, but human factors is a really a scientific discipline, and it's been around for, for 80 years, and it's applicable to cyber because in cyber we are socio-technical field. We have a huge technical aspect to it, but we also have a huge people side to it, and we have also a huge organizational side to it. And so I just encourage people, if you're thinking about something you want to do, you know, don't sleep on human factors. It's a human factor is a mixture of psychology and, and engineering together, and and I love talking about you know the need of psychology in human factors. You know, I, I went down to the Nice Expo in 2019, and and uh, no 2018, and I gave a presentation on the psychological, you know, the needs for psychological professions in cyber. We need psychologists who who can help us understand human behavior. We need behavior analysts that can help give us, you know, a true analysis on our behavior, not what we say, but what we do. And we need human factors, people to come in and help, you know, develop um, a human factors program inside of cyber. So, you know, I, I got, I, I hate to be selfish, but that's my plug. And, you know, it's, it's a selfish plug. But again, we need more people who understand cyber to also understand human factors. I just designed a course for a school out on the West Coast, and I'm currently teaching there. It's the Human Factors in Cybersecurity course, and we take a look at human performance, uh, cognitive awareness, culture, situational awareness, um, the history of human factors, the socio-technical system. So we really get into several different topics in the field to help give the students a more broad understanding of how we can look at the human aspect in, in cybersecurity. Are you going to be uh, appearing on any shows or have any books or anything that you would like us to uh, know about, Calvin? You know what? I'd I, I, I like to give a selfish plug out to, to a good friend that I actually met over the last week and actually talked to him earlier today, and that is uh, Ira, Wrinkle, Ira Wrinkler has a book, and it's called You Can't Stop Stupid, and I can't put the book down. I mean... <laughs> I'm supposed to be working on all kind of research right now, and I can't put his book down because he gives such 
in-depth you know explanations on how we can eliminate user initiated losses inside of organizations so I, I get out to Ira he's a he's a hardcore human factors guy and again the book is fabulous I can't put it down I would love to make that the title of this show actually <laughs> with, with a title like that how can you not <laughs> yes yes absolutely well, Calvin, I really appreciate you taking the time. We're at the uh, hour here. I, I don't want to hold you past uh, your commitment to us, but thank you so much for for coming on the show and letting our listeners enlightening us with a little bit of uh, information here on your extensive experience in cyber. Thank you very much, sir, for having me on the show, and I look forward to uh, – been in communication with you and talking with you lately and maybe when I, I am going to write a book on human factors and when I get that book published I'll come back oh, and talk about it. Oh we would love to have you back and, and have you uh, talk and, and explain it to us. Give us the cliff notes. Absolutely. <laughs> so I'll give you a hint. So one of the things I'm writing about right now is there's a section of the book called uh, Dog Tire. It talks about mm -hmm. all the different types of fatigue that people deal with from from a cybersecurity aspect. And the last time I stopped counting, due to my, uh, from from my research, there were 12 different types of fatigue that the average person deals with in cybersecurity. There's so much repetitive activity and so many repetitive <laughs> tasks that have to be done, and they have to be done well. It's like the flight pre-flight checklist. You gotta go yes. through it. Yes. <laughs> Yes. If you don't, Absolutely. are your flaps down? Oh, I didn't check it. Well, <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> well, that might Absolutely. not have a good outcome, you know. You're right. It could have a very disastrous outcome in some cases. <laughs> well, all right, Dr. Nobles. Take care, and you have a great rest of your week. Uh, you too, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you.